Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com or wherever you find your podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever. Today on the show, we have Seraphin. Seraphin is a writer, illustrator. She does a webcomic called Asylum Squad. Uh, it's basically a superhero comic uh, for people who have mental illnesses or people that are in the mad community. She herself is a mad identified person. Uh, the comic is partially based on her experiences as an inpatient at uh, CAMH uh, in a facility, and we're going to get into that. She's also a regular at the Toronto Comic Jam, so I'm going to talk to her a little bit about that. But uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing about uh, the stuff that she has going on, so let's get into it. Okay, great. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, Sarah. First, before we get into all the stuff that led to the creation of Asylum Squad, I want to get into sort of your earlier life. Like, where were you born? Oh, what boy, was you're your... just like a psychiatrist. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're, you might be used to this. So what, what was your family life like? Uh, what was your what was your early life like? So I was born in Stratford, which used to be known for theater, but now it's known for Justin Bieber. Yay. And I my, actually was a theater brat. Uh, my dad actually worked at Stratford uh, Theater Festival, and then we relocated to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I lived there for 10 years, and I was always, uh, basically what happened was I started drawing after I accidentally bumped my head really badly when I was a kid, which I hear is how lots of artists start. Oh, really? Yeah. What I, happened? What were the circumstances? I was running around, and I think I just learned to run, and then I slammed into a door frame, <laughs> and then I started drawing... Anthropomorphic stoplight people. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah. so it's like as like a processing mechanism for like running around. You were like, I, I'm gonna like remind myself to like I don't slow know. down. I just heard that a lot of animators and cartoonists, especially, they have concussions and then they start drawing. Wow, crazy. yeah, it's just a thing. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And I, um, I came from a yeah theater theatrical background, so there's lots of sort of like 
elements of theater thrown in here and there in the comic a little bit, like sort of like references to musical theater and burlesque and stuff uh, in the comic you'll see. Um, but uh, I think that comes from my theatrical upbringing. Cool. What did your dad do? He's done many things. He's been a stage manager. He's been a production manager. He's been a company manager. He's worked for everyone from MTC, Manitoba Theater Center, to Stratford Theater, to Dalhousie, to Mervish, to Livent. Well, Livent before Mervish because Livent's no more. But um, yeah, he's worked all over the place. And my mom was a prop maker, and I was a prop maker for a while too. So I can't have. I actually kind of work for Mervish now too as well. And. Um, so the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> cool. Were you always behind the scenes or did oh, you get in front of the stage Oh, we are technical theater too? people. Oh, okay. I'm not an actor. I can't act my way out of a paper bag. Yeah. Okay. So you're getting into drawing because of like a like an accident, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So And I was encouraged to do it because I drew interesting things. So my parents were like, oh, she's an artist, you know, so they kept encouraging me. And I got enrolled in little art classes here and there growing up and went to Etobicoke School of the Arts uh, for high school. And uh, I only have one year of college, which I actually took after I was in Cambridge for a year, which is when I started the web series, Asylum Squad. I'm kind of an art school dropout. I kind of did, I was afraid that art school was going to corrupt my desire to create because of the, the need for perfection. So I decided to leave, at least for now. So what was your experience at art school like? There was a lot of like rigidity? And- <sighs> I don't want to name the school, but I, I compare it to North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> it was very dictatorial, and um, it was. Uh, I I wasn't very fond of the program. There were wonderful teachers there, but there was a rigidity there that was frustrating for me. And um, because of it, I left because I found it was very much they wanted you to draw a certain way, and if you didn't draw the way, like because I'm kind of steeped in the sort of manga esque elements, I was afraid that. Um, I, it's not that I was afraid of, of getting better, changing my style. It was just I was afraid that I would become a machine and. But one that doesn't want to create anymore because the joy of drawing was taken from me. Sort of that sort of thing. Wow. Like, where do you get your uh, manga influences from? Well, there's the obvious when you read my comic, Sailor Moon is, is like the main one. Any Magical Girl series, because I was really into that stuff in high school. I'm not really up on anime or manga right now. So I am just rediscovering a few series and I can't even tell you their names. <laughs> I actually am re-watching Sailor Moon, the original series. I'm not nuts about Crystal because it's just the art doesn't really do it for me. But um, I don't really watch a lot of stuff right now. I mostly draw and meditate. Like, it's kind of boring. <laughs> what, you are, I think, the either the second or third guest we've had on that has been influenced by Sailor Moon. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. And I want to know, like, what about that show sort of appealed to you and well, spoke to you? It's a silly show. It's not a particularly well-written show. It's formulaic, and it's the same sort of plot formula over and over again. But there's something about those characters, and there's something about the mythology of the planets, and there's something about the fact that the characters, there was like one girl for every girl. Like, every girl could identify with one of the Sailor Senshi. And for me, at the time, it was Sailor Uranus. Like, I'm not a lesbian, but I really thought she was cool, and I I had the same haircut when I discovered her, and I was like, yeah, she's the best. And I had friends who identified with all the Senshi, so we dress up like them for Halloween and it was just it was just fun to pretend when you were in high school and junior high did you ever like cosplay as them I didn't go to conventions but I went for Halloween as Sailor Uranus and my friend went to Sailor Neptune so naturally everyone thought we were a couple we were just friends (laughs) yeah yeah you're trying to answer all these awkward questions (laughs) at the door (laughs) yeah it's funny anyway um yeah I want to get into how did you find yourself in the mental health system in Toronto well 
I had some teenage angst, and unfortunately, instead of getting therapy, I took antidepressants, and that was a while ago, and that led to some self-destructive behavior because the antidepressants didn't marry with my chemistry. And unfortunately, that led to further diagnoses, which I feel were completely off now, like borderline personality disorder, which actually I don't have on my chart anymore because they decided that is not my diagnosis. And they're constantly rewriting my (laughs) chart because they don't know. But what happened was uh, I was trying to... Back in 2006, I was trying to come to, uh, I was trying to enlighten myself. I was trying to raise my consciousness. I was trying to do that kind of quasi hippie shit, you know, like consciousness journeying. And I was doing it with marijuana. But uh, everything I, I read about, about and when I study yoga and, and uh, consciousness rising and experiences of consciousness, that's the, one of the worst things you could possibly do because it, it can upset the mind. And then it's like I got thrown into a journey through my unconscious. And I got thrown into a journey where I, uh, in my mind, where I was bombarded with psychic demons. Some days I still feel like the demons are real, but I go back, I constantly go back to the idea that no, these are demons of the unconscious, the shadow self, Jungian stuff. And um, what happened was, when I, I was trying to get off of antidepressants I no longer needed because I conquered my depression when I started confronting my true adolescent problems. And then combination of, I would assume, withdrawal from medication and trying to do this with my mind, like doing mental gymnastics, led to me having a crisis that I feel is completely misinterpreted by mainstream psychiatry. And fortunately, and, and fortunately, I should say, at this point, I have a much better care team. I actually have a wonderful psychiatrist that just started seeing who doesn't believe I have. I've been told I, I by some doctors, oh, she has schizophrenia. Another doctor said, no, it's schizoaffective. And the, these current people have basically undiagnosed me because they feel it's more of a sort of transpersonal experience. So Okay, so there's a lot to unpack. Very much so. <laughs> in terms, and, and so we're going to go back over this a little bit. Okay. You you mentioned that you were having like it started with like self destructive behavior and consciousness raising. Well, the self destructive behavior was more of an adolescent acting out kind of thing. That was years before. Okay, that so, was so not this around was the like, time. This wasn't around the time. This but, was a, but it was like it was like a precursor sort of thing. Yes, and and I think any any teenage any parent would not really know what to do with a teenager. And at that point in time, it was the nineties. What do you do? You put your kid on Prozac, right? Uh, you, Is that what your parents did? They, you know, it, I was actually listening to the doctor which I probably shouldn't have done. And they were just like, okay, whatever. Like, they actually weren't forcing me to do anything. They just saw a person in pain, really. And and so I was the one who was saying, well, the doctor said, you know. So it led to that. In terms of self-destructive behavior, what are we talking about? Cutting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You started taking things to to treat that, or yes, SSRIs, SNRIs, SNRIs in particular are very hard to come off of. Okay, yeah, it's like FX or XR is an SS SSNRI rather. For those that aren't familiar, what what does that mean? Selective serotonin uh, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, and and then an SSRI is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. I believe what, that's how you. Okay, what do they do? They basically act, have the same. As far as I, I've heard, they have the same mechanism as cocaine, but they do it with ser- they do it with serotonin. They recycle the serotonin and allow it to uh, build up a serotonin to uh, sort of effectively tricks your brain into thinking it's happier than it really is. Okay, so you, so in order to like get out of sort of a depression, they try to like. Instead of confronting, your... yeah, instead of confronting the issue, which was which was something, uh, if I was to tackle it in this day and age, 
I would know how to do it from an adult perspective. I thought, oh, I could just take a pill for that because right. I was 14. You know, I didn't right. know better. And it was the wrong approach. What were you going through at that time that was making you depressed? It's sort of personal. I, I just had issues. And I also had just, I think, hormonal adolescent angst. Right. It wasn't anything really more than what most teens go through. Cool. Except there was there was some difficulties in my life, but I don't really feel like sharing them. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. And then, so, so that was sort of the precursor and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then you mentioned that you were you were withdrawing off of them at some point. Well, I had one doctor at one point who was trying to, who had me on antipsychotics because I was cutting. It was like it was like a snowball effect. Like instead of taking me off the antidepressants and asking me what the real problem was, they just kept adding pills. And then I was I came off of the antipsychotics that I was taking just for what he called dissociation, but wasn't. The problem was um, getting off of the effects, or which was the like I said, the SSNRI, which is really tricky to come off of. Especially, um, I ended up. Um, I, that, that was a period of time where I wanted to better myself, and I wanted to do it as quickly as possible. I didn't want to sit around, and I couldn't get any help from the medical establishment in coming off the medication because it wasn't a narcotic, and they don't help you if it's not a narcotic. Like if it's a narcotic, you'll get inpatient care, but if you are coming off an antidepressant, you're on your own, kiddo. You know? Right, so like withdrawals aren't treated. Withdrawal is not treated for the... It is if you're on like something like heroin or something, but not for their drugs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So it's a really div- it's a really challenging system to be in, and it's a really frustrating system to navigate. And so I was basically, you know, trying to do this on my own, and I was so determined to better myself because I couldn't stand entertainment at the time. I couldn't stand the world. It was so corrupt and so capitalist, and I just wanted to expand my mind. And, um, so you're like, I'm going to do this myself. I'm yes. going to do it naturally through like consciousness raising I, stuff. Well, I basically and- did the dumbest thing possible. I dumped my medication down the toilet, and then I just said, I'll do it with mind over matter. And that's not that, mind over matter has its place, but that's not exactly the best way of going. You need you need some kind of you need to decrease the medication gradually, and you need to have supplements or something to to maintain maintain the chemistry. Right. It's a little bit of both. So I had the mind over matter, but I didn't have the the, the neurological uh, support to so really basically good intentions, but bad methods, kind bad of bad methods because there was no one there to guide me. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So then you said you, as a result of that, you started seeing like uh, shadow demons. Oh well, when I say shadow, I'm talking about I'm referring to Carl Jung's concept of the shadow. That's the interpretation that I that I've been having. It, it's it's like the shadow self. It's like the dark side of the psyche okay. coming forward to present demons of the psyche. Um, but it really felt like because I was using Ouija boards and stuff at the time that I was dealing with something from beyond and and that's sort of where the the element of uh, Liz Matter's journey in my comic comes in. Yeah, did you feel did you feel like you were being But her, I should mention her journey is not my journey either. Right. Like it's there's f- elements in it, but it's not the same journey. It's it's different. Right. Like Cuz I don't want to spoil the comic either. <laughs> yeah, Asylum Squad is not autobiographical. Oh god, no. It's just influenced by your experiences in the system. We should definitely clarify that. Yeah. In terms of the shadow self cuz I just want to get this concept before we move on to like yeah. the comic and stuff. Like how did that present itself? Did you feel like you were possessed? Did you see things? My like- body started to move on its own. I started to talk in tongues. I started to um feel like I was being invaded in many ways. I felt like this was not, these are not typical schizophrenia symptoms when you start speaking on your own and stuff, but because psychiatry has a very limited perspective on consciousness, 
they were ignoring everything that they didn't understand, and they were focusing on the things that they had heard of. Or and that's that would what, fit into a particular was, yeah. diagnosis. So that's why they would stick to it, the schizophrenia diagnosis. Also, I, you know, the, to receive a schizophrenia diagnosis, you basically just have to look and sound crazy. And you, and uh, it doesn't help if you're a person of color and you're from a lower class, too. That will, a lot will add to the diagnosis. Right. So yeah. what is what is schizophrenia? <sighs> so we well, have like a baseline of like... According to the DSM, schizophrenia is it's it's a dis, it's a disconnect from reality, right? And it's, um, it's hearing voices, seeing visions, yes, but also flattened effect, which is when you um, you have a sort of baseline personality, or that's that's the best way I can describe it. I'm really not doing this justice. Poverty of speech; these are the ways it's written in the DSM. However, there's many critics of the label saying that it really is just a cluster of symptoms, and anybody who presents as a voice here with the wrong doctor can be labeled as schizophrenic. Like it's, there's no test to actually biologically prove that a person is suffering from it. So anybody who is having altered states of consciousness and you get the doctor who's, who feels that that's what it is. Cause like I said, my, my diagnosis has changed so many times right. that I simply don't identify with um, at least any of the diagnoses that don't fit and are, extremely negative and i feel uh, support the nocebo effect which i should mention is the opposite of the placebo when the placebo works against you okay so the placebo is like when you think you're getting better and, and you're not actually taking anything mm, well but- no the placebo is when you actually do get better because you're taking something and you think it's working regardless of whether or not it actually does anything okay but it's the, like dumbo's feather but the nocebo is uh nocebo is when you believe you're getting you're ba- you're you're not getting better you believe you're sick and because of your belief that you're sick you remain sick and that's what's wrong I feel with a lot of psychiatric diagnoses, at least the way they're handled, like I feel that it's the approach that's a problem. Mm-hmm. It's not so much, I, I mean, I, I get criticized sometimes for being anti-psychiatry or get t- told that I'm, it's not so much anti-psychiatry, it's critique, it's critical of psychiatry. I feel that um, when I bought into the ideas that I had, that I had no hope of getting better, that I had a brain disease. That was when I was at my worst. When I started to deny deny them, I say that in quotations, when I started to perceive it as something other, something more profound, something more interesting, that is when my mind started to get better. So what you you mentioned that your diagnosis has changed a bunch of times yeah. and evolved and different things. What is what was your diagnosis and what is it now and how do you think of your state of mind at this point? Uh well at first it was when I was younger it was depression then it was depression and obsessive compulsive disorder then it was obsessive that and then it was borderline personality disorder it was a dissociation then it was schizophrenia then it was schizoaffective then I read a see what I mean it just yeah. is layer after layer and it does it just ceases to me have any meaning and then I saw a, a Jungian I still see him. He's fantastic. And he said, I'm not going to diagnose you at all. You know, you're going, you're going through something transpersonal, basically, is what he said, which is um, something that's transformative rather than detrimental to the mind. Right. And something that actually is, it's like the, it's like the hero's quest. Something I actually read, learned about in Ty Templeton's class. You know, the hero goes into the underworld. In this case, it's the unconscious, fights their demons, emerges gets a, a guide or something and it's like it's like kind of like a classic story right so it's almost like a personal hero's quest and then one emerges wiser and more powerful than they did before and i feel like that's what's happening to me that's pretty and, profound and this psychiatrist that i recently got to add to my care team 
<laughs> she's the most educated psychiatrist that I've ever ha- I've ever had. I've only seen her twice so far, but she is not only a psychiatrist, she's a neurologist. She's studied uh, neurosurgery and she's a yogi. Wow. So, that's, yeah. that's so awesome. she understands consciousness better than most doctors. So, and it's a lot of, you know, how you tried to fix yourself before with like new age stuff and like yoga. And I wouldn't call it new age. That's kind of uh, reductive because oh, okay. that's kind of the, the sort of the white centric kind of perspective. Uh, okay. Like I, I think my approach is maybe naive. However, right. I wouldn't call it new age. I would call it more, I was more into Buddhism at the time. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And though I didn't have, I had a naive perspective on what enlightenment was and I was just determined to get there. I wasn't buying tons of crystals and shit like that. I mean, I had phases where I would go out and buy something and try to do that, but it wasn't my driving concern. It was more that sort of fi- finding the search for self. It was more trying to figure it out on my own. So what led you to be in an inpatient facility? Like what was happening at the time that led people to put you into an inpatient facility? I won't go into too many details out of privacy sake. However, um, I did get into a bit of hot water and I did lose my apartment for a while. And so when that happens, they... I had to wait for housing for quite a while, and I was in there for quite a while because they, I, I had gotten into a state, and it was because I was aggravating my mental state with marijuana, uh, and I had to learn to quit that, and I had to quit smoking cigarettes, and um, I had to live a cleaner life. Like, I seemed to get away with drinking alcohol a little bit once in a while, like just a drink here or there, but I couldn't, I couldn't do... Mary Jane was my best friend for a while, for creative sake. And once I, once, once I started going through this journey, she became a frenemy. Yeah. Like- <laughs> she was not a friend anymore. So I, um, yeah, I ended up in, in, in the Queen Street West Mental Health Center for a good year. Well, not a good year, but a year. And, um, well, yeah. That's what that's what happened. Sorry. <laughs> so so, what was your experience like there? It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. It was filthy. It was there was a lot bad lighting, low ceilings. There was people that were like never going to leave there, and they were actually saying that I was never going to leave there. And I kept telling them, "You're so full of shit. You know, you have no idea who I am. You have no idea how strong I am." And so my mom, she said that too. She said, "No, you don't know my daughter. You have no no freaking idea." So it was just like. A year of being told that I was never going to get better, that I was schizophrenic, that life was bleak, and that I just had to take my medication and be compliant, and all this kind of patronizing claptrap. So I started my comic while I was there, and this actually were the comics that I recently took from the web because I no longer feel the body of work represented who I was, and that was the psychosisdiaries.com that doesn't exist anymore. I took it down. I didn't want to pay for the site anymore, right? and I felt that it was... I, I was done with it. Like, I just, this year I was done with it. And I said, well, it got a lot of interesting attention. It was something, it was an interesting body of work that helped me write comics again. Because I was doing, like, a, a shittier version of Asylum Squad years ago when I was just on antidepressants and stuff. And it was kind of lame. But this version was really important to me. And uh, it was just sort of a, an, an, an interesting experiment where I, I didn't really know how to write. But I just wanted to express myself while I was in this dire situation. So how did you how did you do that? Like how did you get access to like paper and pens and things like that? And well, I did get passes, so I would go to the art store that was used to be across the way, okay. and I would buy a sketchbook. It wasn't anything fancy. I got some Staedtler's um, pens, and I just started doing this this stream of consciousness comic that was about these four characters who I'd played around with before, and I started 
you know, applying certain elements of my own experiences and some that were fictional, and I don't talk about which ones are real and which ones are fictional, to the characters and just explored how their lives unfolded and how they fell apart. In terms of your own experiences, you mentioned a lot in terms of like the way that the staff like treated you and the and like your general experience of the system, right? Mm-hmm. It says on your website like this is a comic where, you know, people who get it will get it kind yeah. of kind of thing. What are some of the things you and you can be very general and not very specific about this that people will get? What are some of the the elements of that experience? that are uh, important for you to include. What do you do you mean people who are in the system who will get it or yeah, people yeah. anybody? Like you you mentioned on your website like um yeah, people who are in the system, people who have experienced it. What are some of the common things that, you know, people in the mental health system do I think experience the that hopeless, you wanted to highlight? The hopelessness of certain at least certain mental health facilities, the that especially long-term ones, um is one of the elements how the staff become as institutionalized as the patient, except they're the ones who sort of dictate what how, li- how life goes in the hospital. Um, I think that they can identify with some of the c- condescending attitudes that you'll encounter. But I do have positive characters, too, who are staff. Like, I have Stella, who Nurse Stella, who is actually... Well, it's not much of a spoiler now because it's been on for a while. But she, she in the first act, she turns out to be schizoaffective. Like she's been diagnosed with schizoaffective. And I also, she identifies the label. Like not all the characters are saying, I don't have that. It's just, it's Liz. She's kind of going through what I'm going through in some respects. She's sort of like, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. The other characters are, do identify with their diagnosis. And I don't have anything wrong. I don't have anything against people who identify with their psych diagnosis. I just don't feel that with what I've been through, it's an accurate fit. Anyway, getting back to what you were saying, I think that people can identify with the bleakness and the yeah, like the sense of hopelessness, and also the controlling aspect. And it's kind of like being in a prison and an old folks' home at the same time, <laughs> something like that. Well, you know, it's that's, really that's sad. A good way to describe yeah. it. I mean, I've been in hospitals myself, like you know, more briefly than other people have. So I do get the sense of the, the like the way the medical community will treat you in terms of being a little condescending sometimes yeah. and they they are very misinterpretive and sometimes it can be like they don't really listen to you because they have an idea of what they think you you have and in in a sense they it's like i said they've been institutionalized as much as we as the patients have because they're trained to perceive cases this way they don't they've been trained a certain way and they have to follow a certain model and if they dither from that path they can get in trouble right that's what i'm learning right exactly yeah so like i think a lot of nurses go in and they're like yeah i'm going to shake things up and i'm going to be a radical and and they get they they get burnout or they fall in line and they do the best they can but they really can't change things as much as they thought they could right there's that sad reality it's just it's not so much individuals it's 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 the structure of the system that I really have a problem with. Because I did meet some wonderful staff. I shouldn't dump on everybody. My primary nurse was lovely, for example. I'm just frustrated with the the, the fast food medicine that we're fed. Yeah, the structure, the way that people perceive mental health, and so the way that they have decided to treat it. Yeah, in it's society. very rigid. It's very based on what what's in vogue as far as what's considered inappropriate. Like remember when homosexuality was considered an illness until 1973 or 78 or something like that, 
and uh, apparently grieving is now mental illness like because they want you go to go back to work so they've decided that if you grieve longer than two weeks or something like that you're mentally ill and you need to be medicated instead of letting the natural grieving process and the healing that goes with it uh, play itself out they now um, get people back on pills and speed them up and you know get them back to work because we're all kind of in a machine you know so yeah it's it's very anti-capitalist to stop working over a certain it is of time. and it's kind of a threat if you can if you like it's kind of a threat if you fi- if you find yourself no longer needing to produce or to consume so let's let's go into the broad strokes of the comic i mean you mentioned that the your early work is not representative anymore of like you know what you're what you're doing now or how you think about it. But what was that early work like? Well, it was the it the work that I put out from the years two thousand and eight to two thousand and twelve was very much about the the mad experience, and I was avoiding I I, I was throwing around words like schizophrenia because it it did affect my art at the time when I was actually starting to believe that that was the best way to describe my illness simply because I had been institutionalized so it impacts you but then as I started to get better and as I started to realize this is not a chronic condition for me this is not what about all these other symptoms that they're ignoring until I found the treatment that uh, that really works for me it would sort of I would go back and forth and say am I really am I is that really my diagnosis you know is that really what what I'm dealing with but the meds never actually worked that well like they they would numb me so that I could like ignore voices visions and stuff but they didn't actually get rid of them i was still going home and having really interesting conversations with cartoon devils and stuff like that so when you hear visions and have or or see visions and have voices and stuff do you perceive them as real or do you know that they are my visions were mostly entirely cartoon characters that were in my art style and they presented themselves in my mind's eye so it was like tuning into a television program in my mind so it's like i i could just focus inward like the best way of describing it to somebody who's never had a vision it's like imagine having a sheet of plexiglass in front of you and there's something projected onto it and then you can concentrate on the world beyond that sheet of plexiglass or you can you know refocus your eyes well i was doing that with my mind so it was like seeing like focusing inward with well the inner eye the third eye the the mind's eye whatever you want to call the ability to perceive visions in your mind um, voices, I could also tune in and out. It was harder to tune in and out without medication. The channeling was never, this is what I can, this is, okay, channeling is a term that I use loosely because I do believe that I'm not really con- connected necessarily to beings. However, it feels like things talk through me. So I do use that term in a kind of metaphorical sense. It's like my consciousness speaks through me, evoke, like my, my word, my, my mouth. It's like automatic speech is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, like it's <laughs> not something you really want to is, say, but it's Oh, no, it's, 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 it's a willingness to allow information from a wiser source, or sometimes a negative source comes through, and that would be annoying. And then I do it with automatic handwriting, too, which is when you allow your hand to move on its own, and it writes messages. So the surrealists are really into that, apparently, is what I learned later on. They were into focusing on candle flames until the mind switches, and then you start. And these are not necessarily indicative of a pathology, but the in my case, I think that some of the doctors thought it was because they couldn't explain it, and they really just didn't know what it was. So for automatic handwriting, you're writing, but you're not consciously It's like your knowing. ego steps aside, and then you, you allow your hand to just move on its own across the page, and then it writes, like, it'll write messages or draw symbols. And then at the end of it, you're like, whoa, like... 
Yeah, you, and it, you it's like a ghost you, moving your hand, or you a ghost wrote a whole page or something. Yeah, it's like a ghost mo- speaking through your body, or a ghost moving your hand. Now, wh- whatever it really is, it was confusing, and the meds never had any means of controlling that or stopping it. And in a in a very in a way, I really was glad because that made me feel like I could gain that inner wisdom and insight that I was seeking because there would be really great pearls of wisdom that would come through when I was dabbling in this stuff. When it seems like if you're creating a comic and you're a creative person, it's sort of a superpower because there, way, there's things is, yeah. that you can see that you've written that you might be able to incorporate. I had some of the most incredibly hilarious visions and I wish I could share them with people. Like not all of them. Some of them were dark and disturbing and I wouldn't share them uh, with anybody. But like, for example, one time the devil presented himself as Frylock from Aqua Team Hunger Force. Oh, crazy. And he's like, hey, Sarah, this is the devil. I'm presenting myself as, as Frylock from Aqua Team Hunger Force because I know you like cartoons. You know? <laughs> and then another time I saw this anime girl with cow at her breasts uh, dancing on a cabala tree and there were laser shoes shooting out so i was like playing happy hardcore on my headphones and she was like dancing and sync to the music and stuff so it's, who wants that to stop right right and you know that it's a vision <laughs> but you just it's entertaining I am fully aware in a way. i'm fully aware that i'm witnessing a vision i just don't know what it means like what the what the the, the ultimate reality of right. experience is it's like trying to explain this to your your square-headed psychiatrist um, in a in a mental institution when they they really have a limited perspective on consciousness and you really don't have the knowledge or insight to back up at the time to back up what you're experiencing it's really frustrating to really get your try to get your point across that you really really don't think this is a brain disease this is something more profound than that man you know this is actually really cool and it's feeling my art and i feel that it's leading to something profoundly enlightening about my 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 personality is coming through and i didn't actually I only ever had two symptoms of schizophrenia. I, I developed paranoia because I was bombarded by psychic input, and I had the psychic input. But I didn't have any negative symptoms, which are like the flattening out, the the stuff they talked the, about earlier, the, the, the speech and affect, stuff. Affect, yeah, the, li- yeah. the flat affect, the poor, kind of stuff. P- the poor hygiene. The, you know, these all sound like crude stereotypes, and that's why I really don't like that diagnosis yeah. because it's sort of painting a stereotype of what "quote unquote" crazy person is. And I've met so many people who've been diagnosed with it who don't fit that at all but still like they come i don't know it's just it's complicated so at this point are you just not diagnosed with anything at this point i it depends on who you talk to and and but this new doctor she she this is really fresh like really fresh i've only been to two sessions with her but um she's basically told me i know i know what you're you're going through and it's horseshit what they're calling you so but you what you know is that you do need uh, a care like a psychiatric care team you have support that way i have you don't have any official diagnosis I, would, I have like i said talk it, it, like one hospital will say one thing one will say another yeah. so i it's all they're just they're just constructs anyway right. you know like there's certain di- disorders that you can prove they, like dementia you can prove dementia exists you can prove epilepsy exists you kn- people do suffer from symptoms of depression and these symptoms are real and these experiences are real but i just hate the idea of diagnosis and these sort of like treating it because they say, oh, mental illness is just like physical illness. Well, it, yeah, people suffer just like physical illness and don't put the person down because they can't go to work and stuff like that. But I find that it, when it gets to the point where we're treating them like um, 
hard science. That's a categories. A bit, that's a, and yeah, boxes. categorizing people, yeah. and that leaves me cold. Simply because that's what I became under the wrong doctor. I became my diagnosis, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really fucked up my life. Yeah, you know. So yeah, you just started being what they were telling you. Well, it's like I started doubting myself, and then I was like, my my life was really shitty for a while and I won't go into too many details about why but I felt like a broken horse or something like that you know a spirit the spirit was broken and I had to get my spirit back and I had to kind of hit some walls uh, for a while and I had to meet some make some new friends and I had to just do this comic you know because the comic brought me back brought back my spirit and it brought back my drive to sort of rebuild my life and to create and to explore that's awesome you've been listening to Speech Bubble back after this This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. Explain to people who've never read the comic, who are the characters, what is it about, like, what happens broadly in the comic? Okay, so the protagonist um, is Liz Matter, and Matter was kind of a pun, uh, because, um, obviously, to go mad, and I was just coming up with, like, last names randomly, and I just, I like the sound of it, it sounds cool. So she's the protagonist, and she's kind of a... Sort of a fiery redhead who uh, believes she's possessed by a horse demon with a very complicated name that I seem to be the only person who can pronounce. And the name is Armanan Stantanu. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I, I had to write down that name when I reviewed the, reason, the second volume of your comic in Broken Pencil. And it was it was really tough. For the me reason to I chose that name was because I kept channeling it and I thought it sounded cool. And I didn't think ahead at the time that it might be too complicated for people to say. So I used it and I kind of regret it, but I kind of don't at the same time. Um, well, it and, came from your experience. Yeah, and that's why I used it, because the channel actually named the, the horse demon, the, the quote-unquote channel. So um, this horse demon comes through a Ouija board when she's dabbling in the occult, and she ends up getting, which, you know, in her words, possessed by this demon. And, of course, she ends up in a psychiatric facility, and nobody really understands, or they don't believe. And... Yeah, that's kind of based on certain experiences that I had where I felt like I was being taken over. Um, and then there's Henry Chan, who is sort of the comic relief character. Oh, I should mention Liz Matters also. Her faults are that she's kind of classist and ableist in the beginning, and she goes through a personal transformation journey throughout the comic to be a better person. So Henry Chan is um, sort of a, a well-meaning but woefully ignorant uh cross-dressed who's Chinese and he believes he's the Jewish Messiah and a lot of people are like well wait up isn't that cultural appropriation but it's almost like sort of like I have a line that's coming up in the comic where he's kind of like somebody calls him out on it right and he's like oh darling please you know uh, what I did while I was insane is no worse than what white people do with Buddhism while they're sane. Right. <laughs> you know? So it's kind of like flipping it. So he's actually like the comic relief character and he's kind of like uh He's just the one I have fun with as far as, like, the humor and the, 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 the hijinks. And, and he's a crossdresser, so, like, I, I noticed the gender-bending aspect yes, right away. Yeah, yeah. 
in terms of you know yeah. when I was reading it. For yeah, sure. yeah. So he's he's just a fun character, really, and he's he's a little ignorant, but it's 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 not supposed to be mockery of any subgroup or anything. It's really just a character who doesn't get any get any religion, and he's trying to make sense of it while he's mad. Uh, and then I have Cash Schneider, who is a burlesque dancer slash dominatrix character, because you got to have one, right? <laughs> <laughs> and she believes she's uh, possessed, or possessed, she's controlled by aliens called the Abdugala, and they live on Uranus, and they control her through masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have Sarah like Loveheart. they're making her masturbate? Yeah, making her masturbate to relieve soul energy so she can be, in her, in her, at the beginning of like the, the, the Psychosis Diaries book that I put out, she believes that if she can just fine-tune the energies in her soul by masturbating, then she will be able to have a super soul that will be make her immortal. Right. Um, and then there's... A, like you'll be like the perfect being. Yeah, exactly. It'll just be like an immortal body because your soul has these special alien energies. And then there's Sarah Loveheart, and that name is sort of a self-insertion name, but she's no Mary Sue. She's maybe kind of the opposite of a Mary Sue because she's sort of like me... When I was at my worst and when I was a much more, more negative person. But um, her story is not entirely the same as mine either. So it's sort of like, it's me, but it's not just like all the other characters in some right. way. And she basically develops, she has a kind of an obsessive crush on a man who she projects in, into a, a Christmas cactus. And she believes there's a miniature version of him living in a Christmas cactus. So those are the four main characters. There's a whole cast. Like cool. there's, there's staff in the hospital. There's demons and all kinds of stuff cool yeah so what is the general plot i mean when i was reading it i kind of got the sense that they were like they were part of an experiment mm -hmm. that would give them an opportunity to fight their own demons that's exactly what it physically I don't, I don't know how how far you got i only read the second volume i think oh monster hospital 2 monster hospital 2 and i think okay. i think it was basically that they that they got accepted to this special uh, project basically. Well, this is for you. This is the oh. entire Young Ones collection. Oh, this is the next you. two books that come after Monster Hospital 2. Oh, thank you so much. If you want, I'll sign it later. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank and, you. Yeah, it's um, basically they go into their, their unconscious in a Jungian based drug trial. They, they go, okay, I'll start, I'll start a little further back than that. Yeah, sure. So they, they, Liz Matter gets committed to St. Dymphna. St. Dymphna is a patron saint of mental illnesses. St. Dymphna's Psychiatric Facility, which is like a Catholic um, psychiatric facility. Run by nuns. Run by, well, nurses that have the little caps and everything. Yeah. Which, by the way, are, I think, from what I hear, based on what the nun habits were. So it's kind of like, uh, if you want me to go into the symbolism later, I can do that. So like old nurse hats old nurse were based hats on and were based nun on habits. Nun habits. That's yeah. cool. And uh, so she ends up forming a clique, joining a clique of, of ro like rebel mental patients, uh, um, in this asylum who are all kind of like misfits in some way like each of them is kind of what we consider kind of a heretic in one way or another either psychiatrically or religiously to catholics <laughs> some way or another and they, it's kind of like a breakfast club scenario so they end up um finding out about this drug treatment program called the agnia project and agnia is is i think hindi for the third eye okay and so it's the reference for it and I think a lot of people think it's pronounced Ajna Project, but it's actually Agnia Project. And uh, what it is, it's it's based on Jungian psychology, like the basics of Jungian psychology, which is the branch of psychology started by Carl Jung. And it's more of a sort of spiritual take on the mind, sort of like a transformative. So it sounds really progressive, right? And they go into it. 
And you're supposed to design hero personas that they embody in their sleep using a special drug called proniropol, and that allows them to fight their inner demons as superheroes in their unconscious, and this is supposed to bring them out of insanity. I kind of thought about it in terms of at least in structure, yeah, the way that like the Matrix is set up, like you go. I was taking from Inception, but yeah, Matrix is is another. It's one of those dream movies, yeah, where you like are sleeping or you're plugged into a, a system and you're fighting things in your consciousness or in a computer program. It's like in the that, case of the yeah. Matrix. But the other, the other, the other movie that drives me crazy that people compare it to a sucker punch. But it's not. It's like Nightmare on Elm Street three, The Dream Warriors. Okay, that's the one. It's like I don't know if you've seen that. Right. It's the one where they're in the asylum and they're fighting Freddy in their sleep. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't actually consciously trying to do that, but it just sort of happened. <laughs> nice. So, so when they do fight these demons or physical manifestations of like what they're going through in, in their, terms of in mental their, illness, yeah. What happens? Do they actually like cure themselves or? Well, I don't want to. Sp- I, I mean, it's that kind of happened in the second act, and I'm now into the third act. So, do you think it's worth spoiling it? No, I, I don't want you to spoil it. I just want you to give an idea of like if these evil is defeated, like the demons are defeated. Yeah. Does it actually make them better in, it, it's in their supposed life? To. It's supposed to, in during the day, alleviate their suffering in the conscious world when they defeat their demons in the unconscious. Okay. Yeah. It's because they have like realms in their minds that, that they, they explore. So Liz, Liz matters realm is sort of almost like a kind of never ending story kind of scenario where she's, uh, crossing the, the collective unconscious. And then uh, Henry Chance, he, he's in a, a reality TV show for the gods, and he's fighting his demons. And then Cass Schneider, she has to journey to Uranus to free her soul from the aliens that I spoke of earlier. Right. And uh, Sarah Loveheart, she has to... Uh, she goes into a, a forest as a sort of like Joan of Arc kind of knight, and she has to free a prince who's in a dying forest, and the forest is the Christmas cactus. So, like, it's like they they go into realms that are based on their delusions that are in previous works, right. and each of them has a persona based on an implement of psychiatry. So, Liz Matter is lobotomy. Henry Chan is sedative. Kath Schneider is straight jacket and she has like a whip sleeve. Like each of them has implements that are based on the. So these, these are they, like their superhero names. Yeah. And then Sarah Loveheart is Electroshock. Nice. So they, they each have implement, they have implements that are based on these, these, these aspects of psychiatric, old world psychiatric and sometimes modern day psychiatric treatment. So, yeah. And, and they have costumes. And they stuff. have costumes and stuff. And yeah. that was like the fun stuff to design. So it is sort of like the Mental Illness Justice League. Kind of, yeah. I, Except I, I, I've never read Justice League. I'm really out of touch with comics. Like, I really have been working in a vacuum mostly and just like basing it on what I learned from writing from Ty, what I learned from watching shows and, and reading some comics. Like, I was a Vertigo fan back in the day, um, but I didn't read too much. And I also... I, I haven't read a lot of st- a lot of comics. I just I, I mostly like stuff like Persepolis and stuff like that. Right, like all I mean when Sorry. I say just, when I see it, when I say, well, it's good because I because I can I can tell you this. It's like a bunch of superheroes coming together and like joining forces to like fight the biggest <laughs> the biggest threats of the universe, right? Yeah. And in in your case, it's a bunch of I guess a bunch of people that have uh that are in the system that are mm-hmm. have their own mental issues and those sorts of things coming together and becoming superheroes and fighting yeah. manifestations or at least they're metaphorical superheroes metaphorical superheroes yeah, yeah. fighting their own demons yeah 
in a sort of superhero like, yeah. way. Like they have costumes and weapons and things like that. And there's doctors that oversee it, and they're sort of like the guides. They're like the wise mentor guides. Right. And like then there's like the nice nurses who are sort of way cooler than the nurses on that they they see on the other parts of the hospital because this this project is in another wing of the hospital it's in the, it's in the central ass part of the hospital and they get like fancy rooms and suites and everything that are much nicer than the standard so it's like and they get like twenty five hundred dollars in cut which is not a huge amount but I want to be realistic about it. I didn't want them to get like a million dollars or something like that but they're poor so it's like seems like a lot of money right right and so they they uh, get this 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 bundle of cash provided they complete the treatment otherwise they get $500 and they don't get this they get special housing once they leave the program as well if they complete it and that is such an incentive for anybody who's in the system who um has is looking for housing or something to get your own one bedroom like boom because like the system waiting for housing in the housing system can take like at least 7 years oh, in I a know. city like Toronto I yeah. know I yeah uh, when I first left university, um, because I'm a person with a disability, I can I can qualify for uh, subsidized housing and those sorts of things. And, yeah. Uh, I never like I never got selected. Like I think I and the the houses that I did have an opportunity to look at because I mean the rules for housing are you have three chances to accept an offer. I remember that because I'm in, I'm in subsidized housing right now. Okay, so and I I had I had to go on a waiting list for something decent, but in the meantime I lived in some pretty bad. Places. Yeah, yeah. So so basically. For those who don't know sort of how the system works, it's like you apply based on the fact you have a disability, you need certain accommodations, or due to your disability diagnosis, it's like harder for you to find a job and work and, and you know, make up what like actual rent would be. Mm-hmm. And based on that criteria and like doctors and stuff, you, you might get accepted in the program. If you're accepted into the program... You select an area where you would like to live. They, they give you like a. It's called the Coordinated Access to Supportive Housing or CASH. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You you basically they give you like a, it's all computerized. They give you a thing on the computer and you 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 look at like where what area you'd like to live. The wider the area, the better chance apparently you're going to get housing. The, the smaller the area, the longer that you will have to wait and. Let, and so you wait on this waiting list for housing for, for a long time. And then somebody calls you and you get three, you get three chances to accept an offer mm-hmm. for housing. Uh, the problem is a lot of these places are not really suitable for human habitation there's yeah i got out mine is actually quite nice yeah. i mean it still has its problems but you know what i've known i know that the, that the magic thing to the magic box to tick is if you if you tick the one that says mixed housing you ask for oh, one okay. bedroom and you ask for mixed housing because they tend to take the better care of the ones that are are for people who are paying market as well as subsidy yeah. because people who pay market demand more than right. you know so so basically if you end up touring a place and you're like oh no like this isn't for me there's there's crime happening there's there's uh, bed bugs there's oh, there's God, things i mean you hear from neighbors a lot of like you know we had to shut down the the common room because that's where like prostitutes would take their jobs and stuff mm-hmm. like just places that nobody would want to live yeah and if you reject it 3 times uh you go down to the bottom of the list so yeah, yeah. in my case i just lived my life and you know found a place to live and never really 
found a place on subsidized housing that was that was really suitable. Yeah. So I just sort of I was fortunate enough to be able to like move on and, you know, pay for my own stuff and have my parents sort of help me and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you don't have that sort of support and those sorts of networks, I mean, you could be looking for housing forever and I don't know what uh, people do while they're waiting well they for a usually place live in live. places like where i live for like seven years yeah which are like one rooms um in like shared units with people with all sorts of frustrating problems <laughs> oh, like i shouldn't say that that's kind of ableist i mean to say like some people really had serious drug problems and they'd had drifters come by and stuff and that gets to be a problem you know like it's just unpleasant and then you, the, the buildings that some of the buildings i lived in they really didn't take care of the property they really didn't look after the pest control they really didn't bed bugs i guess they they, they jumped on but we had roaches and mice and in this city, there's a there's a backlog of repair requests for a lot of these units, and it's so much of a backlog that they have acknowledged that they'll never be able to get to it all. It's like billions and billions of dollars yeah. of repairs that need to happen, and in a lot of cases, the city is just tearing them down because they they can't uh, repair them, which is displacing people, mm-hmm. uh, and also doesn't really like it's like. You know, I want them to fix the problem, but you know that it'll never get fixed kind of, kind yeah. of thing. Like, that that's the situation. I think that if I was ever a philanthropist, housing would be the first thing I would give money to. Right. Yeah. Not, not that I, it would make a huge dent, but, you know, it would be something. Yeah. So, like you're saying, for your comic, I mean, getting into a nice place to live is is quite the reward. It is. It's, it's like a dream come true. And, you know, I there's quirks to where I live now, but I will take them after what I've seen. Right. You know, and um, so, yeah, getting back to the comic, uh, it's um, sort of like things are go. I, maybe I should spoil it a little bit because I'm in the third act. So people who are basically three of the characters, it goes well for them. OK, but one character, not so well. Oh, okay. And I'm sure you can figure out who it is. <laughs> it doesn't oh, go well. But um, then the third act is about, well, I might as well tell you, it's Liz. Liz is the one who doesn't go well. Okay. Um, and so in the third act, it's like the, the first act was about hospitalization. The second act was about this, it was the sort of the fantasy act. And, it was and the more first about, act, the hospitalization act, is the one that you wrote a little bit of when you were... Actually, no. No? That, the stuff that was on psychosisdiaries.com, which is now gone... Which is the psych? Well, the Psychosis Diaries, the Sodom Squad side story. That was a prologue book. That is is the stuff I wrote in the hospital. Okay, so and what did that deal with? It dealt with the experience of going mad. Okay, and ex- experience, and that was heavily influenced by diagnosis and stuff. And the reason I took it down is because it's also very personal, very dark, and very sensitive. So I just didn't feel like putting myself out there in that way anymore. Did you ever market it? Like, did you ever turn it into a graphic novel? Oh yeah, any- I put it out. I put out like maybe two hundred copies of it or something uh, like okay. that. And there, like, if you can find one, you're you're lucky, <laughs> or are you lucky? I don't know. Maybe you won't like it. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's a super rare collector item. Wow, I, I'd love uh, to yeah. check it out because I, I like the sort of autobiographical things like that yeah well it's again fiction but it's it's these characters it's a prologue but broken pencil has a copy kicking around i know that and and you might be able to find one i don't know 
Yeah. I, I guess I could send you a PDF of it. It's still on my hard drive. It'd be interesting to, to read yeah. it. But it's very it'd be wordy. Interesting to it's see very what wordy. The so. prologue is like compared to the compared to the, 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 series. the series is very much. I won't say it's the most professional looking comic, but it's it's at least organized like a comic. And the flow of story is like a comic, whereas the the prologue is more like a zine kind of expo- experimental kind of like stream of consciousness wordy uh, pseudo comic. Like with the same characters. With the same characters, and it's like what happened to them before they ended up in Saint Dimpness. So the first act of Saint Dimpness is actually after the prologue. And that's about hospitalization. And that I started after I took Ty Templeton's writing for comics one and two. The second act is a sort of what if drug experiment kind of like, because drug experimentation still goes on, but it, it's sort of like based on the, have you ever heard of the MK Ultra experiment in Montreal where they were trying to rewrite personalities with, with ECT and LSD and stuff? Like, it was really sick and twisted. So it's almost like, what if something kind of like that happened? But it was more inviting. It was more like like uh, presented in a way that was more like enticing to the patient. And what if what if it seemed to be perfect and it was based on holistic psychiatry? And it was like what it's sort of a what if scenario. The third act is more about housing mad pride and getting your 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 spirit back and getting your getting your life back. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about that. You mentioned really early on in the conversation that doing this comic and meeting people in the mad pride movement. Um, really helped you to get better. Um, maybe before we even get to that, we have to explain to people what Mad Pride is. What is that movement? Okay, I'm not sure if I'm going to define it very well, but I'll tell you what Mad Pride is for me. Sure. Mad Pride is a reclaimed... Mad is a reclaimed to, to term rather like queer or... Um, words like that, like in, in, the, in the LGBTQ community. Right. And what it is, is it's a movement of users and refusers of psychiatry. So both people who are p- fine with their diagnosis and they're fine with psychiatry, but they they want to celebrate the differences of humanity. They celebrate the what they call neurodiversity of being what is what ma- what makes us unique as humans. What makes us you know the, they say the mad, the glad, the sad. You know, th- these are these are terms that we that we sometimes use. So instead of thinking of you as some something, thinking of your diagnosis as something like wrong a, with you a, and like a, an individual flaw, yeah, you're thinking about it in terms something of something that like, makes you unique. This is something, and it's a celebration of what makes us different. And it's not so much like a, like a an anti-psychiatry thing either per se. I mean, there are people who are anti-psychiatry and mad pride, sure. But there are people who are not, and there are people who are like me, who are just critical of the way things are going, but acknowledge that medication has at least been something that got me through the worst of times in my own experiences, um, but just don't agree with the labels, the labeling and the way it was dealt with, and thinks that uh, medication will be temporary instead of a permanent solution that's not really a solution. Right. Yeah. You want to fix, like, the overall problem with, like, the structure and the system. Which is something that can't happen overnight. And I don't want to do away with it entirely because I understand, like, once the the horse is out of the gates as far as, like, getting people on drugs, trying to, you you were trying to take, do away with all these drugs, people go into withdrawal and it would just be chaos. But it's not so much an anti-med thing. It's more, there's just got to be a rethinking of how we perceive consciousness and how we perceive the human experience. Like, it's a very Western white-centric view on what the mind mind is and it's 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 not really helpful in some circumstances like i think for some some people they feel like yeah this this is a good grasp and that this helps and cool that's great that's not my experience for my sake you know i've seen a lot of 
people who feel hurt by psychiatry and this is their opportunity to sort of voice their experiences and to sort of, you know, speak out and, and stand up stand up for themselves and, you know, just reach out and say, here, this is what I think, you know, this this would be what, what I think should be done. Or It's also a festival, of uh, an arts festival. We have poetry, we have music, we have, well, comics, film, uh, parade, a bed push. Um, and we have a whole week, and it's actually going to be happening in July. I can't tell you the dates, unfortunately, but if you go to, I think, torontomadpride.com, I think that's the site. So similar to, like, the LGBTQ community, yeah. the, the MAD community has its own week. It does, and it differs in different parts of the world. Like, I know uh, Mad Pride Paris, for example, doesn't necessarily sync up with ours, but Bastille Day is a major day for Mad Pride. Like, Bastille Day is celebrated as the day we have the bed push because of what it represents, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And also... I want to mention, I'm also the designer of the Mad Pride Toronto logo, which has gone overseas and been adopted as an international logo representing the movement in various forms. Like, it's been altered depending on where you go, but it's been adopted by Mad Pride Paris, Mad Pride, I think, Netherlands, Mad Pride Derbyshire. Wow. Um, Yeah, it's actually, I just did this logo. I won a contest locally in Toronto. I I think I made $100 or something, and it was like, cool, do whatever you want with it. And it's basically a person, like, breaking a set of chains. It's like, because they used to chain people up in old world asylums, and it's sort of like somebody breaking the chain. And then it says the right to be free, the right to be me. Mm -hmm. Sort of like the right to make my own decisions kind of thing. And I remember that, like... One of the aspects of Mad Pride, I know that like Ryerson has like a disability studies program. Yeah. And they had a, one of their main courses was like Critical a, a history of madness. Study? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, history of madness. Yeah. Is that David Revel? Yeah. 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 Hi- David Revel, right? Revel, yeah. He used to teach like basically the history of madness and like how people were treated in like yeah. the psychiatric environment through history. Yeah. And that's sort of when I first got exposed to the Mad Pride movement was through him and 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 uh, learning about sort of the inequity of uh, of the treatment of people in in psychiatric environments and those sorts of things. The problem I have with the the uh, mental health awareness campaigns, most of them, not all of them, is they glaze over the the mistreatment of people in asylums. They seem to make them seem like these sterile, nice, cozy environments where you can go and have your depression looked after stuff like that and it just it's not like that for so many people if you it and it seems to be like depression and anxiety are chic and they're kind of in in a weird kind of way you know you have howie mandel and on bell let's talk day and all those white centric people who are talking about their bipolar or whatever and it's kind of hip and trendy but for people who have more serious diagnoses and who have been in the system and people of color you know people who are poor it's not the same experience and that's what mad pride is addressing and i don't feel that things Things like Bell Let's Talk or mental health awareness really address the serious issues that are wrong with the system. Yeah, They're really just glazing over it. It's one slice and it's one day and then everyone else just sort of goes back to normal, right? And I don't know where that money's going, but it really should go to housing, like right. we talked about earlier. It's weird because it's like, it's like, yes, they're addressing it, they're talking about it, that's great. But they're also, it's a very... Uh, limited point of view, and it, it's a particular experience for a particular class, and a particular of race, too. and a particular race, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, because mental illness is such that if you have a more severe 
mental illness mm-hmm. that's more difficult to to treat or to to get a handle on people don't want to hear from you and also if you're like me and you you just reject the diagnosis well you you might you might as well just you know, like, like if you're saying, "Oh no, I'm having a spiritual crisis or transpersonal experience," you're like, "Yeah, yeah, go back to, to go back to Burning Man hippie." You know, yeah, it's yeah, just like, yeah. shut the Why fuck up. Why are you up. listening to your doctor? Yeah, they exactly. Know, they know it's better. just like there's, you know, like it's just like this. I, I don't know if you know who uh, Gabor Mate is. No, he's, he's a famous uh, psychiatrist who mostly treats addiction, but he had said in this amazing interview one time that. Um, the best place for a schizophrenic person to be is not in Western society's medicine. It's actually in tribal society where they would be fe- a role would be found for them. They would be storytellers. They would their experiences would be meaningful, and they would probably recover much better than if they are loaded up with psychiatric medication, thrown into a loony bin, put in poor housing, wandering the streets. All these things that can happen because of the way the system is. Right. And so um, he's a fascinating man to listen to. Yeah, and like it's it's crazy because there's a bunch of people where like like you're saying like like you know Bell Let's Talk is not anywhere close to like their experience and, and no they're and, they're all very wealthy very success and I know what they're trying to do they're trying to present like here are some successful people with mental illness okay yeah but it's not that not that so it creates know. an us versus them sort of yeah situation. It, it, it's exactly yeah that's kind of what i'm trying to like, say why can't you be howie mandel yeah yeah what's wrong with you how yeah come, yeah howie mandel was able to get over your men- his mental illness how come you can't yeah exactly you know, type of thing yeah it's they weird. probably had the money for the best therapy and the best you know yeah so. yeah totally yeah it's a very uh inter- interesting take i i also think that like me like this is sort of like the first step maybe in like an acceptance by wider society and usually first steps are never the best it's true yeah it's it's true for many things yeah um i just wish that people weren't afraid of mad pride i think i don't know why people are so afraid of mad pride i mean in this part of the world that's what i feel well they're afraid that it's going too far like uh, so many people that i know are so they're they're so anti-racist there's and they're they're so progressive as far as issues of race um, as far as issues of class, as far as issues of power struggle, capitalism, but mad pride seems too extreme. Like, what do you mean you deny your diagnosis? What do you mean? You know, it's kind of like, it's just certain people that I've talked to, they think it's going too far. They really bought into this medical model that really is no real scientific basis. Like, yes, there's chemistry involved when you you add pills, and yes, these brain chemicals exist, but men's, people are more complicated than just their chemistry. Right, and there's a lot that we still don't know about the brain. Exactly, If we and this is a quote a good friend of mine once said, that if the brain, okay, okay, let me see if I get this right. If the brain were simple to understand, we'd be too simple to understand it. Right. Yeah, so. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. I also think, too, like... The the thing that people don't acknowledge, I think, a lot when it comes to mental illness is, like, they're afraid. They're afraid that people who are mentally ill are dangerous, are yeah. going to harm them. Yeah. And there's this this well-known fact, statistically, mentally ill people are more likely to be victim of crimes than they are to be criminals themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's being... Uh, it's funny, it cracks me up. One time I was watching TV, and there was this episode, it was either Flashpoint or some 
cop show or something and they had a mentally ill man acting out and then it said presented by bell media i'm like ah <laughs> you fuckers you know like, it's just like you have your you have your day every year but this is the stuff you're perpetuating you know but so. i mean even i've been guilty of you know walking a little faster past the person who's having outbursts I, you know you on know, the street and those sorts I, of things i i do it too everybody does it it's such a part of our society we're so exposed to it we use words like crazy you know personally i don't I don't want to police people's language when they draw words like crazy or psycho. I feel it puts me on edge when people use the word psychotic to describe violent behavior, though, simply because that's not the definition of psychotic. And sometimes if it's somebody I care about, I will just remind them, actually, you mean psychopathic. That's the word used to describe disregard for human life. But psychotic simply means you are you're you're hearing voices, you're seeing visions, you're out of touch with reality. You're you're out of touch with this physical reality, we should say. Who knows what realities you're talking to, really? <laughs> it's just a it's just a, a term to describe a, a set of symptoms. It's um and I think that's why I call my original work Psychosis Diaries and supposed to the schizophrenia diaries, because to me, schizophrenia implies something chronic. It implies something more clinical. Psychotic is sort of like a symptom-based name rather than schizophrenia as a diagnosis. Well, yeah, psychosis seems more broad. It's more broad. You know you're going through a psychosis, you just don't know what it is. You don't want to define it. It's like, yes, I was hearing voices and seeing visions, and yes, I was paranoid. So those are technically psychotic symptoms. However, I don't believe that my so-called pathology is a pathology. Like, I don't believe it's, it's an inherited genetic defect, which is what one doctor told me, because no one in my family has ever had schizophrenia. They've had the blues, they've had postpartum depression, but they've never had schizophrenia so that seems kind of like something pulled out of someone's ass right you know so right well like you're saying you know a lot of aspects are similar so let's just ignore the parts that aren't and yeah. go with what we know kind yeah. of thing yeah it's easier that way yeah um i wanted to get back to how did this comic help you get better how did you eventually leave Uh, the inpatient facility and and how did you get on the road to recovery and how did the comic play a role in that okay so firstly the comic was my means of speaking out against some of the bullshit that i was experienced with internally and around me and that was cathartic because i wasn't really allowed to strongly voice my opinion or i'd end up in four-point restraints or in locked seclusion for a few days so i had that was my means i outlet for expressing myself that was a way that i could if it's creative people tend to you know i mean one doctor looked at my comments said oh that's so dark you shouldn't do that and i was like oh for fuck's sake this is ridiculous anyway i started putting them on the web it caught on the people liked them that made me feel better that made me feel better about myself the act of writing it out and get in, and was sort of like a purging it was almost like taking a really big shit <laughs> um <laughs> But it was good shit, apparently, because people actually liked it. And uh, it was also uh, a means of practicing my, my comic abilities, which had gone dormant for a while because I had just been out of... I, I had I had like I said I was making comics before this, but uh, they didn't really lead to anything. They were just sort of like prototypes, and so I wanted to get back on the comic bandwagon. So I did an experimental piece, which was Psychosis Diaries, just to sort of purge myself before really attempting to do a a, a cinematic kind of flowing story again. And you went to Ty Templeton's boot camp before yeah, you was started amazing. your cinematic. Yeah, and people who want to do comics, you need to go to Tyson's classes. 
They're so good. They're worth every penny. I've taken three of them so far. I might take inking one day. Um, I've taken writing for comics one and two, and I've taken uh, penciling or, yeah, it was penciling. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So where are you now with this? I read somewhere that you're thinking about ending the story and moving on to something else. Because I do have an ending, because I don't want to judge the shark. I hope I already haven't. And because I did decide that I just wanted to stop it. Like, I didn't want to just end up saying so so liz what's up oh not much what do you want to do uh, let's see i don't know like i don't know what i would write I, after the after the grand finale i don't know what i'd write maybe a like a fraser thing like there'd be a spinoff but i kind of done with this whole mental health thing i don't want it like recently i got some comics the uh, comics comments back from a show that i was involved in and the comments were very kind of like, instead of analyzing the comic, and instead of saying what they, what they felt with the comic, they were trying to analyze me. And it felt so condescending and inappropriate. Well, because the moment you say that it's based on your experiences, people are trying to parse out and these, what is true and what is But they were like, they've decided that I had multiple personality disorder and that I had paranoid schizophrenia. I mean, yeah, that, I, I use the word in the comment, so I can understand that one. But where are they getting multiple personality disorder from? And also comment, comments on like, oh, her comics make me so happy to be sane. It's like, fuck you, you know, who the fuck do you think? You don't, haven't even met me. You haven't even talked to me. You don't even know. Are these just trolls? Who no, are- these are people who left paper comments on, uh, on an art show I was in. And uh. I... And I know they probably were well-meaning and they were, you know, they're probably young because they're like students of university and stuff. And they probably just don't understand what they sound like. They probably, like, that's what I had to tell myself ultimately. At first it was kind of like, ugh, I gotta get get a bucket, I'm gonna be sick. Uh, But then I realized, you know, these people really, if they're medical students, they probably have that limited medical model that they're following. And they're fascinated and they they want to try to use me as, as like a specimen or something. I don't know. See... Uh, now I'm doing what they're doing. So I don't know. <laughs> but like, it's just, it just felt, rubbed me the wrong way. And I had to talk to some friends uh, about it for a while until I felt like, oh, well, and I just don't look at the comments that I got. Yeah, that's so, probably best. Yeah. So when is uh, Asylum Squad ending? It'll be done in about a year. I'll put out one more graphic novel. I had a publisher, but I don't think the deal is going through. So Anybody who's, who's, whose ears are burning right now, I'm still looking for a publisher. I'm still looking for somebody to take over publishing my comic. I'm still... Yeah, um, because I had this deal, but the guy, he basically doesn't think he can do it at this point. Even though he'd still like to, he said, if somebody else comes along, then go for it. Right. You know, so yeah. it's kind He's of... in a weaker position, This I is guess. the third publisher that my comic has killed. <laughs> because, <laughs> like, I've been to two other publishers... Do you and they find wanna- that you're... Because of the subject matter, like publishers are very reticent to touch your comic i don't know if it's that my art is too rough though i don't think it's rough it's more stylized than rough and and i don't i i think that it could be the subject matter i don't know if it's just too amateur i i don't feel like it's even amateur but i don't think it's super slick either it's too indie is this is the thing it's too slick to it's too mainstream looking to be indie and it's too indie to be ma- to be mainstream it's kind of on the cusp of the two like it's very frustrating to find anybody who really take a chance with me you know, like, because it is a subject matter that it's not, it's not your typical mental health comic where you're like, this is my depression. My depression is a black elephant. My black elephant, you know, follows me around or something like that. Yeah. You know, these are the, the, the tropes that you get with like 
comics about mental health, and that's fine. This is something that talks back to the idea that human beings can be so easily categorized and the system that likes to do that. This is something that talks back to Big Pharma. This is something that talks back. And I think that in this part of the world, at least in North America, we're very pill happy. Whereas other parts of the world, like I know in Europe, they're much more... Mad Pride is much more popular, as we were talking about the movement, because um, people are more, I think they're a little bit more adventurous or something. The spirit of Mad Pride is stronger there for some reason. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And in addition to that, you also do, you also participate in the Toronto Comic Jam. Yes. Is that just sort of like working out, like going to the gym sort of thing? It's it's kind of just like chilling with pencils and beer and it's <laughs> fun. It's just getting together with friends every month. It's the last Tuesday of every month at the Cameron House at 7, by the way, if you want to go. Did that help make you a little bit better? Like getting out and being so, part of the community? Because it really sort of helped me my, my, me feel confident as a cartoonist to have all these people saying, yeah, your work's great, blah, blah, blah. And they were all really cool artists and stuff. And they're all really chill and they're really um, just open to what I'm writing about and I just have some really good friends there and I've and I've I've kind of become like kind of a okay I'm I'm not the one who self-defined this I was told by one of the members of the Mad Pride movement that I'm a Mad Pride celebrity uh, because I, I designed because I designed the logo and I have this comic that's kind of caught on you know so uh, in some circles um, and I wouldn't say I'm an indie comic celebrity, but I'm a Mad Pride celebrity. And that's what somebody told me. I, I think you are. Because, yeah. like, I heard about you outside of, like, the mainstream comic thing. It's not yeah. because I have this podcast that I that I know who you are. Yeah. It's because, you know, I, I got a review copy. And then if you... If you Google, yeah, you, you gave me two really, you gave me two stuff. really good reviews. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. There's there's a lot of articles on you, CBC. Yeah. Um, you were mentioning before we went on air that you that you were interviewed on CBC. Yeah. Uh, CBC Radio was it? It was CBC Radio One. I said the end. I don't. Really, yeah. I don't listen to the radio very much, but. Uh, it was it was about inclusive inclusivity in spaces, and it was a Mayans of uh, interview. Nice. So, you, and, so, and yeah. I, I know Mayan uh, pretty well. She's really good in terms of uh, her, you know, crusading against ableism and her access now app that she does that t- tells people where the accessible places around the city actually are, and you can. Like, I remember rate them hearing about that because I think I think she she either mentioned that on the interview or I saw her later on. No, I, I think I saw it on Vice or something like that or yeah, some show. Yeah, she did a thing with Vice. She yeah, did a yeah. thing with Vice and a bunch of other people. But yeah, yeah. Mayan is is uh, quite the celebrity in her own right in in, yeah. in the disability community. Yeah. So I th- I think I think you're kind of on that level a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. So um, I, I just want to wrap this up, but... Where do you go from here? I mean, you're ending kind of like the biggest project of your life. Well, so far. Soon. <laughs> <laughs> so what's what's the next thing? What, I, okay. what are you doing? I kind of want to do something stupid and kind of like milk and che- milk and cheese kind of thing. Oh, milk and cheese like Evan Dorkin. I, I, I want to do something like that. And the comic the ideas I'm playing with, I don't maybe I shouldn't reveal too much because somebody, I, I don't know. Basically, it's a... <laughs> It's about an anthropo- a world of anthropomorphic telephones, and because I, I and like like big phony is what it's called, and it's like this British phone, and he's got a monocle and a cane, and he's he's a real jerk, and like he has all these like they're all phones, and they're all based on different phones from 
parts of history. And I can't help but think back to Ty's writing class and think, now, what would be the theme of big phony and these phones? And I think ageism, because technology goes out of vogue so fast that these phones, would they, they, they go out of style, they quickly become trash or recycling and stuff. And it's sort of like the malaise of being the old phone on the block while these smartphones, because so the smartphone is kind of called Smart Alec, and he's a little prat, and he's always saying, hey, can you do this? Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> it's just stupid, you know, but it's kind of brilliant at the same time, because there's so many phone puns that we're coming up with, like prostitute pay phones that stand on the corner, uh, like the ones at Sherborne and, and or, yeah. or, you know what I you know, Gerard, Gerard and, and Jarvis. Jarvis yeah. <laughs> and they're kind of like, oh, you really ring my bell, you know, there's just so much humor there that I just sort of like, you know what, maybe I'm just going to do something totally stupid and maybe I'll actually make some money doing it. What got you into the phone? I just scribbled Big Phony on a napkin one day and showed it at Comic Jam and people started making Big Phony comics and they got really funny and I was like, you know what? Once I'm done my magnum opus, which has gotten me kind of popular in in like mad pride circles, I just want to do something stupid. I just want to do something mindless. I just want to do something that's fun. Will you ever, and do you want to, publish Asylum Squad as like an omnibus graphic novel? I would love to. Like all the volumes in one? I would love to, but the problem is, is that my printers can't do it with the binding equipment that they have, and I self-publish. I need, hey guys, come publish my comic. I need somebody to come and publish my fucking comic. Yeah, where's Drawn and Quarterly? Where's Top Shelf? I've, well, you know what? I've approached both of them and I heard nothing back. Oh, Top Shelf, they were nice enough to reply. Drawn and Quarterly, I applied twice and they didn't. You know, like, I just, I don't know what it is, but I'm just not, I'm just not the cool kid in their circles. Uh. I, it's just like in the comic, like Mad Pride, I'm, I'm, popular but in in the comic world the very world that i want to be it's frustrating because you know what like i made the second act specifically part of the reason i did the superhero thing was to have fun and to hope for cosplayers and fan art and i've only ever gotten one piece of fan art really oh oh, really so it really pumps me out and i just i i you know maybe the subject matter is too heavy for people I yeah, don't maybe know. maybe mental illness isn't saleable yet like maybe it's not well, it is people are you, nervous like i said it seems to be people want the comics that talk about mental illness in a certain light and they take it very clinically but they don't want to read something where you're kind of like talking back you know it's, right you know, yeah it's not there yet <laughs> yeah. i don't know well, I I really hope that somebody hears this and they <laughs> and they publish <laughs> your your stuff and 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 make it a big mainstream thing because I mean, for me, this was like a sleeper hit. Like, you know, I I came to it being like Asylum Squad. What is this? <laughs> and, the, and the but I, you know, but I appreciated like the the manga art style and I'm like, "Oh, I'll give it a try." And I and I read it and I'm like, "Wow, like this is something that I've never heard." before and maybe it's because i'm a person with a disability i like seeing particular takes on disability and and i think that like the mad population is an underserved population it is just like you know we talk about lgbtq and there have been you know blue is the warmest color and graphic novels like that for that community and you know lgbtq i mean is it's still not perfect for people who actually are lgbtq as we see in the states and stuff but it's trending and in at least as an artistic movement in many respects. Right, like, and it seems and like... politically, too, obviously, but... And, like, you know, there's there's been comics from written by black people from the black perspective and stuff, and I, and I really feel like disability, but particularly mental illness mm-hmm. as part of overall disability, yeah. 
the, the, it's it's very much a group that doesn't get the same play. So I no. like I like whenever you know whenever someone is finally doing something in the arts that addresses um, a segment of the population that never really gets addressed. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's really frustrating because <laughs> I've gone to like virtually everybody, and I either hear like "sorry, kid," or I or I get nothing. Right. Well, keep trying. Don't yeah. don't let don't be discouraged, and uh, uh, let me know what happens. Maybe maybe yeah. you'll come back, and we'll talk about your other project. Maybe maybe, maybe the phone the thing. Fucking phone. Yeah, <laughs> the phone thing will be more well received. As my mother said, you know that could be your mud flap. You know, keep on trucking, and it's like crumbs like least favorite work because he's just like oh, i just shout that one out and yeah. like it's like the thing that made him famous maybe the big phony is my is my butt flap <laughs> maybe it is so, so on that note uh i'm gonna let you go uh it's been great having you here um and thank you. uh I, I look forward to seeing what else you you come up with okay great yeah i i mean that's just one silly idea i have some other ideas cooking but i don't even i i need to finish this comic and then decide maybe i will go back to school and pursue video games or something i don't know but i need to finish this comic first it's like it's like everything else is on hold creatively like in the long term until this is done so where can people find you online uh well my comic is available uh for reading for free please buy the book uh, <laughs> at asylumsquad.ca um you can buy copies of it at caversham which is a psychology bookstore on, on on Harvard, and that's actually where it seems to do the best because I, I have a big following in the medical community too. Patch Adams is one of my fans. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And uh, also, uh, Beguiling. How do you spell that? C A V E R S H A M. Okay. Yeah. It's on Harvard, and it's strictly a psychology In bookstore. Toronto. Yeah. Okay. And they're really cool there. Like, I really like those guys. And then there's also Beguiling on uh, college. No, that's so weird. Um, and I think it might go on Page and Panel soon because I have to drop some copies off. But it used to be at Harry T, but they're gone now. And, and the snail used they're to carry. They're not gone. They're, they're not gone. They're they're actually one of our sponsors. Oh, so I'm sorry, I can guys. Tell you, I can tell you. Uh, no, no, no problem. I can tell you where they are because okay. I because I work with them. Uh, they're near Young and Steels, sixty nine seventy nine Young Street. So they're That's up north. really far now. Yeah, really far. Well, if I ever want to drop copies off to them again, if they're running low, then I'll. That's what's what. And also, um, it used to be in the snail isn't anymore used to be i might as well not bother telling you where it used to be this <laughs> is a waste of time but yeah caversham beguiling right now are, are your best bets for okay. finding it cool that's awesome how can people follow you on twitter and uh, social media i'm at, at asylum underscore squad and i believe and i oh god this is bad i believe my facebook is at asylum squad <laughs> but if you type Asylum Squad into Facebook, you'll find it. <laughs> so anyway, either way, you'll find it. It just tried, yeah. Yeah, and just Google her. You'll see all these articles, yeah. all these like mad pride things that you've been a part of and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to find her if you're looking. Yeah. This has been great. Uh, for everyone who's listening, thank you so much. Thank you for leaving reviews on iTunes. Uh, you know, Renard Bishop, Velociraptor, uh, all the people that have, that have, uh, that have left reviews for us. Eric Anthony, thank you guys so much. Uh, we're also 
at the moment, we're trying to uh, learn more about our listeners, and we have a survey happening uh, so we can serve you better. It's just a basic 10-question uh, survey. It's at uh, tinyurl.com slash speechbubblepod. So uh, check, that out. check that survey out after you listen to this episode and uh, let us know your feedback. Um, yeah, and uh, of course, you can find us on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SpeechBubblePod. We're on Twitter at SpeechBubblePod. And uh, thank you so much for the support. We're only going to get bigger and better. And thank you, uh, Seraphine. We'll, we'll see you again next time on SpeechBubble. Speech <laughs> <laughs> this has been SpeechBubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.